This is the legendary Tom DeFalco, and you are listening to the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast of all time. And unfortunately, I was not invited to be part of this podcast. I can't believe it. A living legend like me. And they didn't even invite me. Welcome to episode 27 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. Joining us this week, we actually have two guests, one of whom is very familiar to listeners of this podcast, and another of whom is very familiar to listeners of other comic book podcasts, particularly those interested in Spider-Man. So first, a very quick reintroduction of Mr. John M. Wilson. I've podcasted about Spider-Man before. That you have. We've discussed (laughs) Amazing Spider-Man classics on here before. And now, I'd like to welcome on the show for the first time, Mr. Dan Gavazdin. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. Uh, Really happy to be on the show. And John, John might be more notorious in terms of podcasting than about Spider-Man than I am, but I guess maybe currently I might be winning that game. I will handily uh, doff my hat to that, yes. The the work you're doing over at the Amazing Spider-Cast is pretty cool. Thank you very much. Okay, and actually, why don't we tell uh, people in detail where they can find you, Dan? Sure. I'm the uh, the co-host of the Amazing Spider Talk podcast. It's a weekly podcast. Every Friday morning, we put out an episode about the newest Spider-Man podcasts, older comics that we want to talk about. Oh, sorry. Old, newest Spider-Man comics, that is. And we also do a bunch of interviews with creators about, you know, at least one or two a month. Yeah, we keep things going pretty active over there. And I'm also the founder and editor of Chief and Chief of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com, which is a Spider-Man-focused website. We have reviews of all the new books and twice-weekly features about uh, looking back at older comics or discussing things that are on our mind about Spider-Man and all the news and stuff that you'd want about the character. So if you want to know about Spider-Man and keep up with him on a daily basis, come on over to the site and check out our podcast. Also, sometimes you go onto other podcasts and the guy gets the name of your show wrong, so I apologize because as I was saying it, I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I said Spider-Cast instead of Spider-Talk, so I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's fine. There's already general brand confusion surrounding our podcast anyway, because it used to be called Superior Spider-Talk, and now it's Amazing Spider-Talk. I think everybody's a little confused. But yes, Amazing Spider-Talk, that's the podcast. Yep, that is the one, and it is definitely worth listening to. It actually influenced me when I was first starting to comic podcast. I threw out seven different ideas. We had a comic book pilot season, so people could vote for which comic book podcast they wanted to hear. And when I was going through the anthology titles, I took a page out of your book because Superior Spider Talk at the time had the chapter breaks in the podcast with different images on your player in the M4A format. It was a lot more interactive. So when I was doing the anthology books, each different story had its own chapter break and its own background. And that's something I blatantly stole from you guys. That's great. I mean, like, I hope more people do it because I think it's such a wonderful, like, tool that Apple gives you, although they've done everything they can to make it difficult to do it. But, uh, <laughs> You know, it, uh, I don't know, it's just a nice feature to have on the show. I, and, I, and I like looking back at our episodes as kind of memory capsules. With, they have all the pictures and stuff from all the issues. So even if you haven't read the book, you can kind of follow along with what we're talking about. And I go back and re-listen to myself, which is probably more indulgent than I should admit. But, you know, if I don't remember all the details about an issue, I can kind of pick up, you know, based on the visual cues, uh, what it is we're talking about. My wife does like to make fun of me whenever I listen to myself on podcasts. I also like to have the pictures there because I think there's almost like nothing worse than a bunch of people sitting around talking about a visual medium 
without any reference to the visual medium, you know? There's a great Far Side comic where there's a like a group gathering of people that are reading sun- Sunday funnies to each other and it's I think it's just like him kind of making fun of critics of his of his work describing it visually without having it there and referencing not to besmirch what we're about to do but (laughs) there is something lost when you're talking about visuals and you don't have it right in front of you so i guess the point would be listeners at home get your comics out and follow along very much so and in order to follow along we should probably tell you what we're discussing this week we are doing maximum carnage which was one of the 90s crossovers so it has 14 parts in multiple titles, including Spider-Man Unlimited issues 1 and 2, Web of Spider-Man 101 through 103, Spider-Man 35 to 37, Spectacular Spider-Man 201 to 203, and Amazing Spider-Man 378 to 380. Writers include the legendary Tom DeFalco, Terry Cavanaugh, David Michelinie, and J.M. DeMatteis, Pencilers Ron Lim, Alex Saviak, Mark Bagley, and Tom Lyle, Inkers, Jim Sanders III, Don Hudson, Sam De La Rosa, Randy Emberlin, Scott Hanna, Don Hudson, Al Milgram, Colorists, Nelson Yomtov, Bob Sharon, John Callis, Kevin Tinsley, Erica Moran, James Hostin, Chris Mathias, and Joe Andriani, Letterers Chris Eliopoulos, Steve Dutro, Rick Parker, and Joe Rosen, Editors include Rob Tokar and Danny Fingeroth under Editor-in-Chief Legendary Tom DeFalco. I apologize to anyone whose name I just mispronounced. Cover dates range from May 1993 to August 1993. Release dates were weekly for 14 weeks, going from March 30th, 1993 to June 29th, 1993. And as we said with the episode number at the beginning, this came in at number 27 in the countdown. I don't know what it is about uh, Spider Riders in the 90s or, or, or after, but but some of their names, I've always wondered if that's really how it's supposed to be pronounced, like David Michelinie or... I see that and I want it to be Michelini. And, and then you have J.M. DeMatteis and it's DeMatteis or DeMatteis or all sorts of things. So lots of interesting names on Spidey. But um, I think Ron Lim is one of those artists that I just equate with awesome 90s comics. Yeah, the 90s get a reputation for having you know bad art and that sort of thing. That is not universally the case. I mean, this kicks off with Mark Bagley as the artist on the Carnage Rising portion of Spider-Man Unlimited Volume 1 or issue one, and I'm going to apologize. Normally when we have anthology issues like this, we discuss every story in them, at least in some level of detail. My available copies of Spider-Man Unlimited 1 and 2 are through the Comixology app, and if you purchase it through there, they only include the Maximum Carnage portions. They do not include the other stories. So Playback and Long Way Down are not stories I have access to. So for these 14 issues, we'll stick just to the Maximum Carnage portion. Great. It's got plenty to talk about. There's 14 issues of this story. I don't think we're going to run out of things to discuss. <laughs> no. No, this is full enough. It's one thing when you've got just, you know, Giant Size X-Men number one or Amazing Fantasy 15. You know, it's with the one story. But yeah, this, there's enough meat as it is. Uh, so very brief plot synopses for these 14 issues. The first issue is that Cletus Cassidy, who they believed had been completely cured of the Carnage symbiote, just had the things suppressed within him until people took their guards down and gave him the possibility to escape. Along the way, he breaks out Shriek, who is a new character, Francis Louise Barrison, although that's not the name that was shown on a computer screen during this one. When she was officially named later, she was named another way. But yeah, she joins him in his quest to just create carnage and go on a slaughter, while Peter and Mary Jane are going through one of their periods where just 
the amount of danger that Peter's in is a strain on their relationship, and Mary Jane would prefer it if he would just kind of take a step back and let the plethora of other New York heroes stand up and deal with some of these issues that he feels are his responsibility. And we know that she's stressed because she is smoking. I would say, so basically every Mary Jane plot from the 90s. <laughs> and was this before or after the basically uh, the basic outright ban on smoking in Marvel Comics? This was before that came through while Joe Quesada was editor-in-chief. Was, I wasn't sure if that was Joe Quesada who did that or not. Okay, so not many people smoked in comics, but she did. Yeah, it was cutting back. The I think the movies kicked in in around 1986, which is one of the ways you know Ghostbusters was made in 1984, because they all still smoke. But then this being a crossover in the 90s, pretty soon everyone else in the same editorial department is going to join in the fun. Part two, Spider-Man's been pretty badly hurt in the fight against Shriek and Carnage and the Doppelganger from the Infinity War crossover. And so Cloak and Dagger step up and come in to help, but Dagger falls during the fight. Stupid Shriek. Yeah, Cloak was not does not react well to that. Part three, Venom comes into play, and he ends up working with Peter Parker, as much to both of their regrets, because they figure, well, Carnage is the bigger threat, and they both take some level of responsibility for the fact that he's out there. Well, the Demo Goblin, Naster, if that's the way it's supposed to be pronounced, joins up with Carnage and his group. Yeah, the Demo Goblin's an odd character. He, uh, the Hobgoblin, was a guy who found goblin paraphernalia and started doing gobliny things. And if I recall correctly, he eventually got possessed by a demon. And so he was a sort of demonic-looking Hobgoblin for a while. But then the demon got separated and kept on being goblinish. So then you have the Demo Goblin flying around, and the guy who was the Hobgoblin kind of... I think he fades into the background, doesn't he? He stops being the Hobgoblin for a while, but... But yeah, the Demon Goblin, he's, he's very 90s, very 90s character. <laughs> yeah, I will take your word for that. I will admit that my knowledge of Spider-Man from this era is a little bit weak. I mean, we usually get into the personal histories later. Pretty much all the Spider-Man from the 90s I've read was read on the Get Corp Amazing Spider-Man DVD-ROM prior to this podcast. So I've read three out of 14 parts of this. Before this. Yeah, before this podcast. And this story was surprisingly easy to follow in just those three parts. <laughs> Considering there were parts 3, 7, and 11 out of 14. Well, not much changes from issue to issue in this comic. Yeah, that's about it. It's really the roster. So, I mean, part 4, Black Cat joins the fun. Part 5, it just keeps going. He's, you know, decides to part ways with his new allies and tries to do it on his own. And then he talks to the man he believes is his father, who, you know, claimed that he was trapped in a communist prison for years and didn't actually die in that plane crash. We learn in a different story that that's not who this gentleman really is. And so did, so did the writers. They had no idea who he was at the time. Yeah, I was going to say, I think George Lucas still thought he was his father at this point, too. Yeah. Oh, it's possible. Uh, as we keep going, part six, you know, Carnage and his group are still on a rampage, and now Morbius the Living Vampire joins in the group. Oh, did you mention Carrion? Oh, yeah. Carrion is involved as well. The next issue, things get even wilder. The cover press on all these is Here's a rundown of the, of the roster of the characters who are involved now. So the cover of Part 7 is Venom, Carnage, Doppelganger, Demo Goblin, and Deathlock is now on the list. Just to get it more 90s. <laughs> we need cyborgs from the future. Yeah. And then, okay, so the next issue they get Reed Richards' Sonic Gun because, hey, it worked so well with Venom in the past. Let's give that a shot. We also get Firestar and Iron Fist 
involved in the story. Firestar sticks around for much longer. Iron Fist is kind of in and out until his big moment later on. I like Firestar. So part nine, it's a lot more of that. Now we add Captain America to the groups. Because because Captain America. Like he has a really badass intro at the end of an issue. He shows up and he's like, yeah, I'm Captain America. You're like, yeah. And uh, he helps out with the, with the next part. It's, it's, it's really cool. Yep. Up to part 10. Again, there's more mob mentality, which we find as part of Shriek's power, is that she's driving people into a mob. We're starting to get a little bit of infighting between the, the evil group. They were sort of a family structure with Carnage as daddy, Shriek as mommy, Doppelganger, and you know the Demo Goblin and things as kids. Nightwatch is now getting involved. Who's basically Spawn. Yeah, he's as close to Spawn as they could do without getting sued by Image. Part 11. It's a lot more of the same. <laughs> Sorry, I'd like to have a little more detail in these plot synopses, but even going through my notes, I'm reading it, it's like, okay, Shriek is getting every under, you know, part 12's plot synopsis, Shriek is getting under everybody's skin, including the heroes. Everybody punches each other. Wow. Yep. And part 13 is where the big crossover in the big cast part of the story really comes to a head. We find out that Dagger hadn't actually died. She was just buried in the dark dimension. They take most of it out, but they leave the final battle, which is just Venom, Spider-Man, and Carnage for the part last part, which is the second issue of Spider-Man Unlimited. Spider-Man Unlimited was the quarterly Spider-Man title that launched with this crossover. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of this feels like to me. It feels like editorial decided we needed another Spider-Man title. Let's do something to make it different from the other four we already have running. Let's make it bigger. Let's make it a quarterly anthology. And we need a big push and a big story to kick it off. And it will be 33 pages. Yeah. And that, to me, it seems like what it felt like. It felt like, let's launch Spider-Man Unlimited. And what's a story we can wrap around to do that? Well, I think getting that uh, that quarterly fifth week book in was just one of those things. That I don't. I don't think Spider-Man was the first one. It might have been the first one. But a lot of people jumped on that bag bandwagon. Even Superman eventually launched The Man of Tomorrow for its fifth week quarterly. So it's it's one of those things that's just is kind of typical of the era. But yeah, to uh to spotlight the launch of Spider-Man Unlimited, we have this story that caused me to stop collecting Spider-Man comics. So I don't know if we want to get into personal significance or whatever now, but that that's that's my connection with this story before reading it for this. I had been a Spider-Man comic fan since I was a wee lad. And I had some paperback volumes from the 70s that collected the first 20 issues. And I read those a zillion times as a kid. I first started buying Spider-Man comics in mid to late 1990 with Amazing 341. And I, I, I bought every issue strong and steady until this. And I remember I was kind of not feeling it anyway. Cause I mean, the Spider-Man stories weren't the most engaging fare at this point, but I missed a chapter cause it was weekly and I forget which book I missed. I missed a chapter and I tried to pick up after that chapter. And I was just like, you know what? I'm not sure I really care. <laughs> so I stopped buying Spider-Man and eventually stopped collecting comics altogether until 2008. Hmm. How about you and Dan? What was your first introduction to this? Well, you know, at, at this point, uh, you know, I was not reading Spider-Man comics. I, I started with 375, the famous Venom fight at the, uh, at the closed down Coney Island uh, Wonder World or whatever it was. And uh, so Carnage, Maximum Carnage had wrapped itself up, I guess, earlier that year. And uh, so I would go to the comic book shop and I would just see, you know, just a glut of Maximum Carnage books. And, you know, it was intriguing. I mean, 
let's let's admit that this wasn't uh, you know this was a, a kind of a, a unique event in comics. There was a video game that came out later in the year that was uh, based mm-hmm. around it. Universal Studios transformed their park into like a maximum carnage event and had a, a amusement ride where all the villains from the story would torment you. It was a big deal, and Marvel was going out of their way to really sell this thing. And, you know, I bought it. I, I owned the video game on Super Nintendo and couldn't get past the fourth level because it was brutally difficult to my young self. I guess I was eight at the time. And, you know, but I bought these issues because like, I thought, this is the thing, you know. I, I'm, and the video game had, you know, recreated panels from the comic. So it was their first, like, really, you know, attempt to kind of get, like, a story from a comic to be something broader. We never had a video game where, like, a, you know, a particular story was the focus of the game, more than the characters just showing up. So it was it was presented as a big deal, and I think, to my, like, less discerning mind, I kind of enjoyed reading Venom and Carnage, like any idiot did in the 90s. And so I bought it up. Now, I mean, I've reread this a couple times, and, you know, only a couple times, because there's only so much one can take, I think, of Maximum Carnage. Uh, maybe I'm putting my opinion on my sleeve here, but I find this book, like, almost impossible to read. It's just a slog. I mean, 14 chapters of something that could have been done in a couple issues. But uh, one thing remains from the day that I started buying it and, you know, to now is that I love Sal Buscema's artwork in this book. Anytime it gets to Sal Buscema, I'm all about that. And, uh, and I think he's got some of the best heartful moments in the book to pencil. So, I, you know, that's my saving grace on this book. Uh, but I remember it for the big event that it is. And so I'm perplexed how it got so high on this list of 75 books because I just don't think it's a great story. I mean, even on Spider-Man stories, I wouldn't put it in my top 75. So I think people remember it for the event of Maximum Carnage. It was a thing. There was even a, a second video game, Separation Anxiety, that came out from this. It was such a big hit. And the game was the first game wasn't even good. So, I don't know. That's, that's my memory of it. And I wonder if that is the memory of the readers who voted it into this list. It's possible, because I clearly remember that video game. Both of them, actually. It's a little bit older than you. This, that would have come out... Yeah, the game would have come out early in my grade 11 year. Mm. Just, you know, right in the early part of that school year. So that's one. We did make it a little bit past level four. My my friend and I used to rent games over the weekend, and we managed to finish it that weekend. It was a pretty full weekend. <laughs> I was just not good at those beat-em-up games. And anytime it got to the web-slinging, I was just failing at it uh, utterly. I'd be curious to revisit it. Yeah, yeah, we had spent many an hour on the Final Fight series, so... And Double Dragon and Battletoads and that basic genre. Oh, sure. So you were a seasoned vet- veteran. Yeah. But was your mind was your mind prepared for Green Jelly's soundtrack? I'll never I'll never forget that the advertising Green Jelly did the soundtrack for this. I have no idea who Green Jelly is to this day. Yeah, nor do I. <laughs> I don't remember the soundtrack. I remember that I preferred playing Spider Man and my buddy preferred playing Venom. So it was one of those multiplayer games where we could agree. Oh, that's good. Because normally we were fighting over the same character. Like, you know, Final Fight, we always wanted to be geese, so we kept going back and forth. Well, who could resist, too, the red cartridge? I mean, that was a sick thing, you know? You had your gold Zelda, but you had your your red Maximum Carnage. Oh, yeah. There was that, but I think... If you look at this on the outline level, I would... I completely understand why this was greenlit and why this went forward. 
what you've got is essentially you've got a Spider-Man story shortly after Batman the Animated Series came out and hit huge. You've got, you know, Batman movies coming out where the villains in Batman Returns didn't quite live up to the level of Jack Nicholson's Joker. And Jack Nicholson's Joker didn't quite live up to the level of mayhem that the comic book Joker could do, and yet the Batman Animated Series was doing that. I look at this and it feels like some Spider-Man writers were really excited by the Batman Animated Series, but they weren't working for DC, they were working for Marvel. And Carnage is Marvel's character who would just kill for the sake of killing and go on a rampage and who cares. To me, it felt like Shriek was their attempt to introduce a Harley Quinn type yeah, to pair with his Carnage. And then, you know, force Spider-Man to team up with who would at the time probably be considered his greatest enemy to deal with this even larger threat. I think this could have been a really good four-issue story crossing over in the course of a month. And for all I know, that's how the idea started. But then when it's tied to starting and ending in their new quarterly anthology, it can't be a four or six issues. You now have to stretch it way beyond. And so you spend the first half of those three months with the villains building and building an entourage, and then the back half where the heroes are building and building an entourage until you have this big random team of bad guys against a big, even more random team of of heroes to, to save the day. And it's not that there's not some story here. Most of your key players have a bit of an emotional arc. Cloak is most notable because he loses Dagger and, and they've been best friends and lovers for who knows how long on the run from the entire world. And he's lost her and she comes back at the end. You have Spider-Man's and Mary Jane's marriage and she acts like she's about ready to leave him because he's Spider-Man despite the fact that his being Spider-Man saves her from that one fight. Like the fight comes to her doorstep and Spider-Man saves her and she doesn't give him any love for it. And so there are some stories that happen here, but but you're right. It's They're not the kind of arcs that couldn't have been done in four to six issues. Yeah. So what do you think about that, Dan? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, rereading this, I'm always reminded that there is some heart to the story. You know, you know, I, I had totally forgotten about Peter's father and how he kind of tries to teach him to like forego mercy. And I was like, that's okay, dark. that's a nice, that's a that's an interesting beat to to hit. And I like that Peter's kind of got angels and demons on both sides of him. And there's a wonderful sequence I actually think that Sal Buscema uh, pencils where. Firestar is like nearly killing Carnage, and it's just all of their faces repeated for like four rows of of images. And as Spider Man decides to relent and and provide mercy to Carnage, and she's she's like waiting for him to stop her, and waiting for him to stop her. Please stop me from doing this. And he's not going to, but then he does. I think that's like the emotional climax of the story, except that that happens in like issue eight. You know, so you've still got. <laughs> You still got like six issues to go riding this thing, you know, and yeah, it's just a slog. I mean, this, I can't imagine anybody like reading this over three months or so. Like every time I read it, I'm like, I just have to get this done in like an afternoon or I'm never going to finish it or never feel like coming back to finish it because it's literally just fists hitting each other. And there's a point where I have to admit, I just start skimming. I'm like, all right. Yep, yep. And like everybody is telegraphing all of their punches. They're like, maybe if I hit him this way, you know, and you could just feel the writers being like, we got to do everything we can to make this somewhat interesting, you know, and and there is there are some interesting things here, you know, like how far will, you know, Spider-Man go like the whole Batman thing, like if he kills the Joker, will it end 
I, I, your your point about Batman is is very well taken, and I think Carnage is definitely meant to be the Joker substitute because he's kind of funny, you know, and and playful <laughs> in that kind of sick way. I remember there was that whole like Fleer Ultra series where there was like a Carnage vacation thing, and he was just like kill like it was just different places in America for every state, and he would just be killing someone in every state with a joke, and it's like okay, this is an interesting. I guess kind of retread of the Joker, but I don't know where I'm going with this. But yeah, I think there are things in this that are redeemable. And yeah, like you said, four issues would be, you know, might even still be too long, but it would, it would definitely be a more manageable story and one who, whose emotional ups and downs you could chart a lot easier. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that Joker and Carnage would eventually team up in a, in a, in a story, I believe called Dangerous Minds, maybe, or, or I don't know. But there, there is a Spider-Man-Batman crossover with with uh, the Joker and Carnage. And the Joker hates Carnage because, yes, he'll he'll kill everybody. And at first, the Joker likes that, but he's like, there's no art to it. The way you do it's not funny. And Carnage is like, I just want to kill people. Which, which is one drum that he keeps on beating so much in this story is that I just want mayhem because I want mayhem. And it's it's not till the very, very end of the story that he says a few things about the, the abuse and stuff that happened to him as a kid that made like made him like this. And, and there are hints. I honestly don't know if we ever get a real in-depth backstory of carnage to understand why he has lost his mind. So utterly, he's just a sick, twisted serial killer who, who stabs people over and over again because it's fun. Well, in recent Carnage stories, we've gotten some glimpses into his history, but it's like the Joker, you know, it it changes every time he tells it, so you can't really trust whether it's true or not. I mean, I'll admit, I think Carnage is one of the least interesting villains in Spider-Man's rogues gallery for the exact reasons that you just laid out. There's no method, it's just madness, which, you know, can be interesting, but not as a as a like a lead villain that you want to see Spider-Man fight. It's like more like a theme or like an idea. So I, I actually think Marvel's been really smart with the character over the past couple of years because I kind of use him in these stories as like a B character. I've liked those stories quite a bit. I really like those two minis they did, what, three or four years ago um, that were painted? Carnage and Carnage USA. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, uh, uh, is it Del Mundo's? No, 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 it's... Uh, Oh my goodness. Clayton Crane? Yes, Clayton Crane's artwork, yeah. Really, really liked those. I thought they were great. And and you're right, madness itself is not interesting. It's only interesting in so much as seeing people react to it, which there mm-hmm. is a little bit of a story here with Peter Parker and how he reacts to it. And I think this is the beginning of his walk down toward becoming the spider, which is where he, in the really dark mm-hmm. place he's in right before the clone saga. So Maximum Carnage does kind of set up some emotional paths that take us to the Clone Saga a couple years later. Yeah, it's about actually a one-year gap. About a year, okay. Yeah, this ends with 380. Oh! And the storylines where he's got the spider leading into the, the Clone Saga are right? about the 304, yeah. Well, you, in between, you get the reveal of the parents and the mm-hmm. revenge against the chameleon, and that's kind of what pushes him over the edge. I actually quite like that story. It's kind of sloppily handled reveal, but the follow-up is pretty good. I think the spider is pretty great as well. So this does have some sort of significance in Spider-Man's life path, even if it's not exactly a great story. (laughs) So, I mean, like, what do you guys think? Why did it get so high on this list? I mean, it sounds like all three of us are kind of like, yeah, it's not great. 
Like, so like, what do you think it is? Do you think it's the marketing and like the people have fond memories of a book they haven't revisited? It could be. I mean, people will tell you that the golden age of pop culture is 10. So whatever came out when you were age 10, that stuff is exactly what you're always looking for for the rest of your life. So there could be that element to it. And I know that was a part of the reason the Clone Saga made the list. Most of the advocates I could find for the Clone Saga were the ones who started reading comics for the first time during that era, or at least Spider-Man comics for the first time. And the people who were just two or three years younger than that are the ones <laughs> who ate up the carnage and Venom developments that came about in the early 90s after after Venom's admittedly rather awesome few stories, initial few stories, before he started getting overused everywhere. Yeah, and if we look at the timing, with that huge marketing push around it, this could be fondly remembered by a few people because this could be where they started reading Spider-Man or comics in general. Hmm. This could be the jumping on point that drew them in. And that may be a part of nostalgia that you just can't kick down the road. Because I think we've all said like this, it's not without redeeming qualities. I think we're just a little perplexed about why it's on the top 75. Yeah, top 75 or even what are we at now? Top. We're at number 27 Yeah, I was going to say 20 something. Okay, 27. That's, wow. Yeah, so it's, the listeners at home would probably know this. It's a little bit tougher for us because we are recording things out of sequence and well before the release. But this shows up in the countdown one spot better than Spider-Man Blue and one spot lower than House of M. Yeah, that's that's dreadful. I mean that that is that is that is dreadful. <laughs> I can't I can't even fa- Spider-Man Blue is everything you want in a Spider-Man story and this story to me, you know, I I if anybody who listens to our show knows that Mark, my co-host and I kind of kick this story around as a joke cuz we like think it's dreadful. I'm overusing this word. But Spider-Man Blue we hold up as like the ultimate, you know, that's like ah. getting a nice slice of a of a of a, of a, of a baguette and and a, a a really good brie and between them you put a slice of spam. It's just like why would you do that? I don't even know why it's there. But um, but yeah, yeah. If we go through this, usually when we're looking at the criteria of why something lands on the list, we look at three different things. We've talked about the entertainment value, where there's some there, but probably not enough to put it. Now here. I'll say that I read this an issue a day. So I read this one issue per day for the course of 14 days. So it was never difficult for me to get through an issue. And I think that that was the most condensed I would ever want to read this story. And I feel like if you're reading this in bite-sized chunks once a week, and you're one of those who enjoyed a lot of the tropes of the early, well, by this point, we're getting to mid-90s, then this could be right up your alley. It's only when you try to look at it as a 14-part chunk that it's like oh my gosh what a slog fest maybe that's it maybe that's it i should not be reading it in an afternoon yeah i read it over the span of a few days just you know looking at the issues i have left i've put in preliminary recording dates for all podcasts and i have a spreadsheet telling me you need to average so many issues per day to get everything read in time to get them out this is like lazy man's marathon that somewhat yeah this is just saying, okay, this is what must be done in order to not miss the deadlines. When I was reading this, I was up to, I needed to read about 2.4 issues per day. So every day I was reading three issues. You're bra- Oh, look up. at you. You're an overachiever. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I'm at, I'm down to 1.8 issues per day to get everything out on time. Look at which that. Which is nice. Because at, at one point I was at like 5.7. We had, whenever this thing started, you had 160 yep. something issues to read for the Clone Saga. 
Yep, which was 10 episodes in. So. <laughs> you, see, you see, listeners, if you sprint at the beginning of a marathon, you can walk the rest of the way. Yeah, and it could very well get to that when we look at what we've got coming near the end. But <laughs> reading it that way, it's, I mean, again, it just, there's good ideas here. I see what they were going for, but one of the downsides to the Tom DeFalco era's editor-in-chief, and I'm not blaming him or making him responsible for anything, and I'm not just saying I'm not blaming him for it because he recorded that bumper you heard at the start of the episode. It, this is an era where marketing was permitted to dictate to editorial what was going on. Mm. So I think this is a period where you know they might have a story and marketing said, that's a great story, just you know, pad it out a bit, we'll stretch it from however many issues you have to 14. Because the elements are here that can make it great. And that was pervasive in the 90s, especially with the crossover stories. It just feels like there's a good idea here that didn't live up to its full potential because of what marketing was allowed to tell editorial to do. Oh, and there's one other aspect of the story structure. The story ends in part 13. Like, Carnage has an ending. They have beaten him. It's over. And it's only on the last page that he says, no, just kidding. And you go into part 14. So that's just another example of the padding it out that, that maybe marketing was requiring them to do because it's... Yeah, it's entirely possible that, that last page was there because marketing said, you know, we didn't see the, the spike on unlimited number one that we wanted. So let's put it in unlimited number two and really make sure that people are sticking with the title. Because, because more maximum carnage, that's going to make them stick with the title, right? <laughs> in that manner, it seems there's a lot of rushing on like art and lettering duties too. I mean, the lettering is all over the place in this book it's it's like diagonal sometimes and like not intentionally like it's it just seems like a real rust job in a lot of places i mean alex saviak who's normally so controlled in his pencils his design i've never seen his pencil or ink work so loose as it is in this book it seems as if everybody was running a marathon and it could just be that they're having to draw like 20 characters per panel you know, and and that really takes it out of you. It is. But even by issue 380 of Amazing, right, part 11, Mark Bagley's artwork seems rushed. Oh, yeah. And I can't imagine what kind of deadlines you need before Mark Bagley starts feeling rushed. Right, the ultimate fast guy, uh, Mark Bagley. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're talking about the guy who was doing 12 to 14 pages for DC's Trinity, which was a weekly comic. Yeah. So he was doing 12 to 14 pages Every week. Well, he put out two yeah. issues of Ultimate Spider-Man a month. Yeah, Mark Bagley's a monster when it comes to cranking out pages, and they look so good. They do. He's one of the fastest artists that's out there today, if not the fastest. And yeah, he, he, there are points where it feels rushed. So whether that was because they were trying to wrap it up in eight issues and were told, no, it's going to be 10. Or like, I don't know if they knew it was going to be 14 when they were writing the first issue. I don't know how much of this extending came out, because as John said, it feels like the emotional climax for the, the heroes and their team hits in part eight. Maybe at that time they thought it was going to be done in part nine when they were laying out that outline and the marketing said, nope, 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 make it bigger like they did with the Clone Saga. Maybe it's a Spider-Girl type of situation where like every few issues they thought they were done. Do you get, did you guys get a sense when reading this from book to book, the style of each different writer? I mean, anytime I got to a spectacular title, I thought, wow, it really slowed down. We got a lot more character stuff. And I think it's probably true of the Amazing title as well. Amazing seemed very focused on Peter Parker's family and, and what they're doing. And those two titles, I mean, those are the premier titles, but you could just get a lot more sense of control from the writers in terms of what they wanted to do emotionally with the characters. I, I did notice that. Like the, the web of and the plain old Spider-Man t 
tend to be less enjoyable reads than the amazing and the spectacular in this. Sure. Yeah. Because, I mean, this is after Todd McFarlane was on the adjectiveless Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Long after. He was only like 13 issues. Yeah. So, and once he was done, it felt like Marvel didn't really know what to do with that book <laughs> a lot of the time. We have a fourth Spider-Man book. We didn't need a third and we don't have Todd McFarlane. I don't know what we're going to do. Yeah. But it's selling. So keep it going. Right. <laughs> <laughs> The 90s, everybody, where Spider-Man was the only book selling in Marvel's line. Yeah, it's that and the X-Men were basically keeping Marvel afloat once Bagley and Nicieza broke up on New Warriors. Mm -hmm. Nothing against Daryl Robinson, who took over. His work is good, too. But, you know, after issue 50, when Nicieza was gone as well, and the the industry as a whole was slumping, you know, even Spider-Man was Marvel's top-selling book, and it that was during the Clone Saga, it's not that it wasn't slumping, it's just that it wasn't slumping as much as the rest of the line. Right. Right. We talked about that with the Clone Saga, where, yeah, the sales were coming down, but it was doing well in proportion to Marvel's other titles. And that's true portions of this and the X-Men line, and part of that was the crossovers that they had supporting it, which is part of the reason that Marvel Comics, or the comics market in general, crashed. Because at this time, DC was doing the same thing with the Superman books. They had the triangle numbers. So there was multiple Superman titles, but they were really telling one story at any given time, just with rotating creative teams on each part like this was. So, and if you go back to the, the reasons it made the list, as we're saying that there's usually a few points. We talked about the entertainment value. We talked about the plot significance, whereas I, I don't think there's any specific event we can point to here that says, yes, this is why, you know, continuity changed before and after. But as John said, it is definitely a break in the road that leads from Spider-Man before the Clone Saga to the Clone Saga itself. This is part of that pathway. And then the third possibility is in the section of the podcast that I have blatantly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, which we should all be listening to. They're doing fantastic stuff. When we check for messages, morals, and meanings, and if there's any messages in there, and you know, because there's some books, like I think one of the reasons Silver Server Parable did so well is because that's a book that speaks to the reader. If you've thought about the role of, of religion in man's life, it has a lot to say about that. Did we find any real messages? In this story. Well, after wading through all of the muck, there is actually a, a message here. I mean, I think it's one that has been done time and time again in Spider-Man books, but it's kind of about sticking to one's principles and, and I guess the importance of Spider-Man's credo of great power must also come great responsibility. And Spider-Man goes to the edge where he's willing to kill and then realizes that once I do that, then I break everything and nothing means anything anymore. So I guess it's like about sticking to your principles and those that you care about the most. Um, and Mary Jane learns that lesson too. Yeah, it, it does so somewhat clumsily, but it does address the issue of how far will one go. And not only for one's own sake, but also for the sake of those who look up to one. And I'm going to keep on using the pronoun one because it's cool and I like to sound, you know, proper. So like, for instance, Firestar. Firestar very much looks to Spider-Man as a role model, not not even a mentor or, or any sort of trainee or any sort of like direct, you know, influence, but as a model after which she can be a hero. And that goes back to, you know, the, the origin of her character as, as Spider-Man and his amazing friends. But whenever Spider-Man is willing to go too far, Firestar thinks that means it's okay to go too far. And they both realize that no, that was not okay. At least not for them. I'm not going to pass an absolutist moral judgment on what they did, but 
for them and for who they want to be, that was not okay. Yeah, I would agree. That's basically what I got. And the other thing here is I, I did like part of the reason that Peter was in this ethical dilemma is that you know his surrogate father, Uncle Ben, had died so long ago, the man he thought was his actual father was giving him a completely contrary message where you know he didn't know how much power Peter Parker had, but he's saying, no, you are not responsible for others. Take care of you and your own. Let the rest be damned. Right. It doesn't matter what you do to others as long as you're doing it to protect your friends and those you care about. And, you know, later on, we understand why that message is coming from this version of Richard Parker that is not revealed in the story. But it, it did pose an, a nice counterpoint. So you could see Peter dealing with it. Well, what happens now when this father figure in his life is giving him contrary advice? And we see, you know, how much of Uncle Ben's message to him about with great power must also come great responsibility how much of that he's following because Uncle Ben said it, who is his father figure, and how much he's following because Peter just knows, no, that is the right thing to do. Right. And we see deep down, no, this is, Peter does that because he's Peter. And, you know, Ben may have modeled and put it into words for him, but he did back down, even though his dad was saying, no, it's okay to screw others over. I'm sorry, it's interesting because there are times in Spider-Man's history where he does lose sight of that power of responsibility message in his life. And a lot of times something reminds him of Uncle Ben. And that's like, oh, I forgot Amazing Fantasy 15. That's why I'm doing this. But here, it's interesting. You're right. It's not that something reminds him of Uncle Ben, but that his bio father figure comes in contradicting his actual father figure. And it's the adult Peter and whom, who, who has become that helps reconcile the two and finds the path that's best for him. Those silly androids, they're always trying to teach you life lessons that are morally bankrupt. Well, not 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 all of them. Data was always a good guy. Ah, it's true. It's true. Except for when he started <laughs> swearing. I mean, come on. It's probably just because those androids spent some time in Russia. It kind of screwed them up. Data and Captain America, they need to have some lessons taught to them. There you go. Anyway, so that's there are the messages there. But as Dan said, that with great power comes great responsibility. Must also. Oh, yeah, must also come great responsibility. Yep. <laughs> there is a difference between them. He's and correct. The way, I will be retentive is hyphenated. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's important. There's a difference. There is. Listen to John Ramita's interview on Word Balloon, and he will spell it out explicitly. Ron Friends and I, like, nearly killed a person over this. Well, I'll leave that to you guys. <laughs> it is maximum carnage, after all. If you're going to go killing people, this is the time to do it. <laughs> Only when you're teamed up with Ron Friends. Right. Yeah, but that's just... I mean, it's there, for sure. But it's there in so many Spider-Man stories, I don't think that's what propelled it to the mm -hmm. top. So I think some of it is the memories, whether it's nostalgic because people read it for the first time, whether they're remembering how huge it was in terms of the promotions and the outside media, which you know was sort of... I wouldn't be surprised if marketing decided we're going to push this story, now go write it. You know, there's so much in the history of how this was created that I'm not sure of, because I, I try to stick to just what's on the page when I'm doing these. But yeah, I think, you know, I wouldn't be one of the ones who voted for it. And I'd kind of like to talk to someone who did to see, you know, how many of our hypotheses are panning out. The, the moral lesson to the publishers here is not a good one. It's basically like, listen to the marketers because they're right. If you write really messed up stuff, People will love it if you market it to them and even vote it amongst the best Spider-Man or best Marvel comic stories of all time. And it's not just that this is 90s tropes. And I mentioned 90s tropes earlier. And we 
there is a temptation when you're thinking about stories like the Clone Saga and Maximum Carnage to just say, oh, it was the 90s, it was, it was bad. And, and I'm a person who likes a lot of quote-unquote bad 90s comics. I'm a fan of the original Stormwatch. I enjoy the original, you know, Wildcats. So there, there are things about 90s that get slagged off that I actually enjoy. This was just fight, 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 fight. Talk a little bit, little bit of drama, fight, 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 fight. It's the Venom and Scratchy show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, speaking of Venom, for as much role as he had to play in this, he didn't really, he actually did not get much of a story. There's no Venom, there's no arc to Venom in this. No, and that's true, I think, of a lot of 90s Venom stories. They didn't want a character arc for him. He was a character who had decided he was already right and he wasn't looking to explore other alternatives. And he would remember things in a very biased way to hang on to his preconceived notions for pretty much every experience he had. So it's consistent with the way he's written, but it does make him seem shallow and it makes it feel like he's an almost pointless entry. He's there to serve as Spider-Man's counterpoint. He's there for Peter to say, oh crap, he's on my side. Yeah. Which we've gotten before and again since, you know, in varying degrees of success. Yeah. All right. So did any of you have any closing thoughts on this one? I was just looking to make sure that there were Spider-Man stories above this. There were. Thank God. You mentioned that it's above Spider-Man Blue, and that's just freaking depressing. (laughs) Yeah. We still to come, we have The Kid Who Collected Spider-Man, Amazing Fantasy 15, Craven's Last Hunt, and The Death of Gwen Stacy. And at number two, we've got Civil War, which does have Spider-Man in a somewhat integral role, even though I wouldn't say it's a Spider-Man story per se. Okay, so four slash five Spider-Man stories voted better than Maximum Carnage. I'm sorry, that is a crying shame. But what can you do? It's the list as it is. Because you demanded it! All right, so I'd just like to thank John and Dan for joining us. It's been a real pleasure being here. I had a great time. I could talk Maximum Carnage all weekend but we, we might just be padding it out if, if we did so <laughs> that doesn't sound familiar at all <laughs> yeah I mean, I mean, we could probably get a really good 40 minute conversation out of this but we could just do it as 140 minutes if we wanted right to. the podcasting gods demand it okay and for those of you who are reading along at home next week we're going to be discussing house of m now that's been collected in trade paperback, hardcover, on Comixology, on Marvel Digital Unlimited, and there's a GitCorp DVD-ROM with the entire event. We will focus on just issues one through right. eight, the core miniseries itself. Okay, so to thank you again for listening. Please feel free to rate the show on iTunes or on Stitcher or wherever you get your, your podcast from. It really does help the shows get noticed. You can also join the Marvel Discussion Group, and please share the show with your friends if you think they would be interested. Finally, thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the -the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage.